0: Hey, all So I wanted to provide just a few introductory notes on this episode that you're about to listen to. Uh, So the episode was supposed to be about colorism. um, And I did introduce it as the topic of colorism. um, But we actually started off talking about our broader experiences of racism as black women in the sector. Uh, But stick with it because we eventually do make our way full circle back to Um, the original topic of colorism. Um, And we do end up also having a a pretty interesting conversation about uh, this concept of model minority. Um, A few interesting highlights um, that I I wanted to bring to your attention from this discussion. Uh, There's a pretty intense, but I think much needed focus on uh, the trauma that results from the constant experience of racism and this discussion for me ended up being way more personal, I think, than I had uh, originally anticipated. Another interesting highlight um, is from uh, Dina Skippa, one of our guests, um, and she shares her perspective and her experiences of racism in the sector as someone who may be considered by some as white passing. Uh, and then Rosebell offers a pretty unique perspective, I think, of her experiences um, of racism um, and gender inequality and sexism um, as a black African woman working in the sector. Um, and I think her perspective really also points to um, some of the differences um, in I guess the relative privilege um, that is afforded to um, to black American women for example um, that have gone through a western education um, and whose language whose first language is English um, and just the, the differences in in treatment there which I, I think was pretty interesting so there's a lot to reflect on a lot to unpack I also really want to encourage you to check out um, our guest Dina's podcast uh, called embracing enough it's an awesome podcast. And also check out her coaching company, Enough Labs. Uh, the link to her website is included in the episode notes. And if you are a black woman working in the aid, humanitarian, development sector, and you have a story you want to share, um, or you think you might want to share it, please feel free to direct message me on LinkedIn. Happy listening. We are back with another episode of still black women rise and i have my two lovely co-hosts chichi and rosebell and we have two amazing guests that i'm super super excited about having an awesome conversation with uh, the lovely dina and Muna. um so we're gonna be talking about colorism for this episode and um I think the reason that I thought it was important to have this, and, and we identify this as co-host as a topic, um, I think that it's something that we all experience as, you know, women of color, brown women, indigenous, black women, um, and it's something I, that I have kind of been struggling with as well in different organizations where I've worked. Um, and then currently, I'm kind of seeing with the racial equity movement, there is like this, you know, this emphasis on is it white on black racism, white black racism? Um, And I think the colorism piece and the sort of discrimination that we experience amongst ourselves isn't really talked about. Um, And the reason I felt it was important is because in the aid sector, I don't think that they get it, meaning like white people. Um, And I just get a little bit frustrated with this weird, maybe deliberate substitution of black people for more comfortable versions of non, non-white people. Um, so um, we're gonna be talking about this issue. It's a very informal discussion and Muna and Dina were gracious enough to um, want to share their personal experiences with it. Um, so they're gonna be sharing you know, how that showed up for them in their personal life and their professional life. Um, you know, how it's impacted them professionally and personally, and we'll all be sharing as well. So it's just, you know, building off of, you know, their personal stories and having a broader discussion about this whole issue. Um, so I will let Muna um, begin. Are you still there?
1: I'm here. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Muna Masakoi I, wow, I've been working in the field of development for about 15, going on 16 years now, um, primarily working with what we in D.C. refer to as the Beltway Bandits. Um, they're a group of sort of medium to large size international development firms um, for, for quite some time. And I think with me, in the professional front, race has always been sort of the elephant in the room, especially when having discussions with white leadership because nine out of 10 of times, it's usually an all white cast of members in the room. Um, That in itself, of course, creates an immediate wall or at least in in my existence, there's a wall there because when you're dealing with that sort of seniority Um, You, you want to attain to be at that level you want to see people that look like you and I think that helps bridge the gap, or helps give a young woman of color a young black African immigrant woman of color Um, The empowerment that she needs, or at least for me, that I needed to feel as though I was in the right place, to feel as though there was space for me to navigate in this industry, and also to feel comfortable. Um, I found myself changing my speak often to make sure I made my white counterparts comfortable, not being too loud, not being too vocal, Um, I, you can't see me now, but I'm West African. So I talk a lot with my hands. Dina Mm -hmm. can understand that. So (laughs) can you name Muna? So having to tone that down. So I think it was only until about 10 years into my work experience where I was like, you know what? I'm not even being myself. I'm not being my true self because I come to work every day play acting, if you will. Play acting to just survive professionally, to just at least have that 1% of my leadership take me seriously. Because as soon as they see me, they see an African woman I wear my hair naturally, I have tattoos and there's an automatic sort of stereotype that comes with all of those things as a black woman. Um, I know that if I was a white woman and coming to the table with all those things, oh, she's cool, oh, she's unique, oh, she's, there are all of these positive adjectives that tend to go with that. Um, And for me, I found that it was much harder in fact to deal with white women in that particular professional setting. The one category or the one demographic that I thought would be more accepting, more accommodating, more understanding and nurturing ended up being probably one of the worst in terms of my professional experiences. Uh, Fast forward to a year ago, I had a really traumatizing work environment, and I'm not going to say the organization's name, but I'm sure people can Google, (laughs) Um, where I was dealing with pure racism. I had a colleague that was openly saying racist things. Um, I reported it. At the time, leadership didn't take it seriously. But the minute my male white counterparts reported it, it was immediately escalated those people were pretty much removed. And then I was kind of left feeling as though, hmm, what just happened? Did my voice not matter? Did I message this in the wrong way? Did it seem as though I was whining or complaining? I think there's an expectation and not just in development, but in life in general that black women need to suck it up. Yeah. And I don't know when that expectation got started or has evolved, where it evolved from, but there's the expectation that, you know what, when we complain about things, we're making a big deal about nothing. And for me, what that is telling me is that as a black woman, our feelings don't count or we're expected to stomach a lot more than anyone else. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, what I realized was I wasn't being my true self. Um, When I left that organization, I did a lot of soul searching. I spent a year talking to therapists because I was traumatized. I, I didn't think of it then, but I was dealing with 15 years of anxiety. I was having panic attacks and I wasn't knowing where they were coming from. Um, until I started seeking help and realized that, wow, this stuff has been built up for so long and I've been masking it in so many ways that I couldn't do it anymore. So I needed to take a break. Um, And that's kind of where I am now. Um, On a personal front, it definitely has affected me because I think that there's a lot of happiness that I missed out on <laughs> because I was pretending so so much and for so long. Um, I think that there are a lot of job opportunities that I probably would have sought out, but because I was feeling so insecure about my professionalism, um, how good I was at my job, um, I questioned myself quite regularly um and so i was very mindful of where i wanted to end up what kind of work environment i wanted to put myself in and i never made that paramount before before it was always okay what's the job title how much am i getting paid and now i realize it has nothing to do with that you could be happy with making half of anything it's more who are the people am i working with do i have a nurturing work environment do I have a work environment that's not full of microaggressions or racist people or as Dina put it before we started recording a toxic work environment um we we say it with our girlfriends with our our peers our family and we say it in such a casual way but there truly is an issue with toxicity in the international development space so I'll just stop it there because <laughs> I could go on and on and on.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that, Muna. Um, it's, it's because I was kind of getting emotional about it because <clears throat> I think it's just something that when um, you talked about the 15 years of kind of the built up anxiety and stress and everything, and it was kind of pushing me to think about, I guess like what is my own limit you know in like a works because i've experienced all of that I'm, I'm sure that you know we all have um and yeah i was just kind of figuring out like what is my gauge for kind of knowing like when it's time to actually exit <clears throat> and then you know for me i'm still you know in that place of trying to figure out how do you exit you know but you're actually also still able to like live and you know earn an income because you know there's also the stress of that piece. <clears throat> but um, yeah, that was that was a lot of
1: of uh, yeah that was a lot. So imagine this, you know. I think I'm not going to age anyone on this panel because we're all beautiful and you know <laughs> um, young at heart. But imagine a young twenty-something yeah. coming out of uni having these idealistic um, thoughts of what development is, truly with their heart in the right place, wanting to help people. In my case, as an immigrant, I lived this life of the beneficiaries that we're working with. So out of any of these white men, white women, I have a direct relationship and connection to the beneficiaries that we're working with and being told time and time again that your opinions and your thoughts don't matter. So imagine a young professional woman or, or male of color coming into development and that's the first thing they experience. Right.
0: It, it's hard, it's hard. And you and I were also having a conversation and I'll let, I'll let others speak. I just wanted to share with everyone else Muna and I had had a conversation two weeks ago where I was sharing with you um, one of the most toxic experiences of my entire career. Um, And it was like something that literally pushes you to a place. Okay, sorry. I don't think there's any need to apologize, Mamuna. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I think it's frustrating to hear Muna share her story because it's you know that's what we're all going through you know what I mean and that experience for me was so traumatic, so I get it, you know. Um, And I think I I just at a point where it's just and that's the whole purpose of this you know the series is basically to allow us a safe space to share these things because we don't have those spaces in the organizations where we work, you know, it's just, you know, as much as they can say, oh, bring your authentic self to work and all of these things, you do face, you know, consequences for doing that. Um, and I, I don't know if the solution is, is totally leaving or I, I really don't know, it's just, you know, you kind of hear all of these stories over and over again and it, it really just is like, at what point does it fucking end, you know what I mean? I had to, I'm, I feel like I'm still detoxing from that experience. And you get to a point where you literally start to doubt yourself and you start to feel like shit and you start to feel like you don't, you know, you're not, you don't have the capacity or the skills, you know, and all that. That's how they literally break you down to like nothing. And you have to find the resources and the willpower and the strength to literally build yourself back up. And I've gotten to a point where I literally am just incapable of bullshit now. And, you know, have made a promise to myself that I am not going to take it anymore. I'm just like, you know, whatever, I'm just not going back there. It's just, you know, I'll say what I have to say. And, you know, if there are consequences for standing up for myself and so be it, because it's just, I get it, you know, it's just like years of that built up. And it's, I don't think that we stop you know, as Black women and women of color, that we stop long enough to take stock of all of that trauma. You know, and then you add to it just the stigma, even around going to see a therapist and admitting that you have a problem. That whole stereotype of the superwoman, you know, um, is harmful because it's just—it's not—it's not true. It's—it's it's really
1: harmful. I think one thing for me, and I know Dina, you—you've got—I mean. Dina and I go way back, so we know <laughs> what we've got. Um, but I think you're you're right, Maymuna. I, when you start feeling that in, intense feeling of doubt in yourself, when you start thinking about, well, am I worthy of this job? Do I belong here? Is there someone better than me? It's not you, I think that for me is the epitome of microaggression in the workplace. Mm -hmm. When a colleague or colleagues and supervisors have treated you in such a way that it's now turned on you, you now start questioning yourself. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't me. I'm not the stupid one. I might not be The smartest one in the room but i'm definitely not the dumbest one in the room and i didn't come this far in my career by being stupid or lazy or any of those adjectives that one might hear these days Mm -hmm. it comes down to knowing yourself and that's why i was saying for a long time i was play acting i wasn't willing Mm -hmm. to know myself yeah because I thought the myself that I love so much was not acceptable.
2: I just wanna jump in to um, just acknowledge both my Muna and and Muna. Um, Seeking out resources Mm -hmm. externally to try to process all of this is formidable. It's incredible that you had, and I don't use the word resilience lightly, like that, you had the the strength to to try to really access this on on another level, and and to try to engage with it with someone else who could who could who could look at it objectively, who was outside of the chaos that is international development. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because, um, like Muna said, I think it's the epitome of microaggressions that that cause women who are Frankly speaking, I know the both of you are probably in the top one percent of intelligence in any room, okay, and are questioning your abilities and what you what you're able to contribute in that room. It's because of a long-standing history of international development organizations, consulting firms, nonprofits who are who are been established and maintain a status quo. Yeah. And I think it intersects not only with race but but gender and also. Yeah. Identities that, if you know the, the when you look proverbially up, it's mm-hmm. it's a team of white men at a certain age of a certain socioeconomic status, right. they live in a particular part of Virginia, <laughs> in the, the access to true. you know and, and 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 you see women raised to only a certain level, and that level where black women raise is even lower. Right, exactly. It, it it's it's disorienting, it's jarring. It, it's, it, so I just, I wanted to acknowledge the insanity of it all and the fact that you were still able to find resources to process it individually because you're also carrying the burden right. of trying to either directly or indirectly educate right. those colleagues with, within which you, and Muna and, and I have been on, on similar uh, initiatives and, and efforts to try to educate. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. So I'll stop there. I just wanted to acknowledge. I get very passionate about that because mental health is no is. I think I I I'll, I'll end my my brief interlude here. I don't think the that mental health mm-hmm. is prioritized in international development. Agreed. I think okay. there's this overwhelming you know overarching belief. Yeah. Sucking up you know, you should be, you should be happy to yeah. be
0: here. Yeah, exactly, yes. Feel
2: grateful to have a position. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: And um, that's the hypocrisy absolutely. of it all, right? It's so, I, I just find that, look at what we do for a living or what our mandates are on the activities that we do. And we are not, and I say we meaning these organizations are not practicing what they preach. Yeah.
0: The reason I was really interested in having Dina join the discussion is because I don't want to turn you into a curiosity, but I'm like really fascinated to hear about how like your experience with colorism, color, racism in this aid sector um, and how like it basically, this is about kind of also looking at the diversity of ways in which Black women, women of color, Indigenous women sort of navigate spaces, right, like within the aid sector. And I think, Dina, your perspective and your background is really interesting because you're half Italian and half uh, Cape Verdean. Um, and I'm just really fascinated to kind of understand like what, you know, how you, you've experienced this, like in, in the sector. Um, and yeah, and then just continuing this, this discussion, but I, I wanted to give Dina, yeah, the space
2: to, to share as well. Sure, well, I, I wanna be clear to just upfront, I definitely am not uh, speaking on behalf of <laughs> women right? and, and their lived yeah. experiences in the, in the sector. So I can definitely offer um, what my experience and also observations have yeah. been, right? Yeah. So you, you mentioned I'm, I'm half Verde and half Italian. Um, That has left me with my identity being very, um, people have been very curious and not really sure where I land. And so I think with international development, where I started off working as a recruitment assistant, you know, very, very junior um, in a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm, and then moving my way up, desperately wanting field experience because I said, what is this all about? It doesn't feel real, only doing it from here and never getting the opportunity. Then applying to Peace Corps, uh, not getting accepted, having to seek out other pathways. Um, and I actually was able to go finally get accepted to a fellowship for, through an organization called IFESH, the International Foundation for Education and self help which was an organization started by Reverend, Reverend Leon Sullivan was very active uh, in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and um, was all about sending African Americans to um, to sub-Saharan Africa to, to do this type of work. And it was a fellowship program with nine months, uh, nine month assignment with an opportunity to extend. So my my field my field experience finally happened after. Feeling like I had to do all of the things, <laughs> um, you know, not only get land the job in the field, get the master's degree, and now get you know to the field experience. Um, all of it was challenging, and I and I definitely had to advocate for myself. I didn't have any um, mentors or any um, any examples within my family to help navigate this very very confusing sector. I can remember my. Um, the job I took after finally getting so fed up with trying to break into this field after I completed my master's, um, was back in, in the DC area, another Beltway Bandit. And I remember feeling so insecure about my hair. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll say because I had this impression that my hair was wild and didn't fit in the consulting world when I would look at other women that I was that I was around everyone was perfectly quaffed you know it was mainly white women you know and and my personality my being just who I am personally it's Dina Skippa I'm very loud like I I walk in and I'm here like air and all Um, and so I had a lot of insecurity about I didn't feel like I I belonged just with who I was Um, and that You know, I definitely felt like a lone soldier of sorts. I I was trying to desperately make a path for myself in this field, um, and I felt like at times I would be accepted in certain spaces, and other times I felt like, you do not belong in this club, we're just gonna give you these menial tasks. And I feel like that has to do with a lot of different factors at play. Again, working with with certain women who just really weren't um, in, weren't around or had time to be inspiring or empowering. They just wanted to sort of um, hold me in a certain place. Uh, and then as I started to advocate for myself, having to come up against, uh, you know, men with power who, who I, I knew were, had a certain judgment about me. Um, and I'll just say that I, I, where my career really took off was an opportunity that I, I made happen by creating a job description for a position that didn't exist. And I found myself across the table from a uh, white man who felt he was an expert <laughs> um, and he had the deciding factor. And I found myself having to really play small because I knew the type of, I knew how he interacted with other women and they were typically young, very attractive women who there was a bit of flirtatious energy there. You couldn't deny it. It was not happening with me because I did not fit his type. And so um, I, I found myself even shifting a bit of the way that I was trying to negotiate on my behalf because I wanted to sort of placate to that side and it's disgusting to even say it today. Um, but I felt so in, in such a, a space that I needed to desperately advocate for myself to get to this next level that it was like having to have conversations with people that I didn't particularly respect. So then there's the other piece of, you know having spent four years in Djibouti. Um, and then in once I, uh, that experience of, of People not really knowing uh, where I came from or how to classify me, uh, they thought I was uh, potentially North uh, North African, Moroccan, or Tunisian, or definitely Egyptian. Oh, your name's Dina. Okay, that makes sense. I have found myself just being—you know—people make decisions about my identity and 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 what makes them comfortable. And I have to say, at 39 years old, I'm having more conversations about my own identity and how I feel like I've never truly led with a declarative, definitive identity, I've, I've sort of whatever people have felt more comfortable with. So i I know I'm jumping around a bit, but I hope this is, is, is helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. There was an experience I had with IFESH. We were in a training uh, before we were, we were sent off to our respective uh, assignments. And I remember someone asking like, what are you? And uh, she's definitely not black. (laughs) And then other people will say, well, I definitely don't see you as white. So there's been this, you know, I lead with, I'm half Cape Verde and half Italian. What that means in this field has given me uh, a perspective, uh, especially growing up and learning about Cape Verde, but never having visited. I grew up in the U.S., grew up in Massachusetts, but there's been a long history for me of not not fitting in, not looking like the rest of my peers in high school to then going to a school in DC where I felt I felt like I was in more of an inclusive environment to then jumping into international development where I felt like that high school feeling again, where I didn't really belong. And then going to the field and feeling like there was more of that inclusive or an opportunity to just be curious. And there were a lot of people who were there with a like-minded spirit. For me, the foundation of any DEI initiative is really looking at belonging. And I think it's the very thing that we ignore. Yeah. How do we make space and how do we demonstrate these performative efforts that we are inclusive? And inclusion, steps towards inclusion does not necessarily equate with belonging. Yes. There's something so profound inside of what is the organizational culture that's that, that's that's created to foster more belonging, and how is that being translated to, you know, are are the, those field yeah. operations? Muna and I uh, share share you know, know of stories where that that very um, the fact that that was not the the, the tone of the organizational culture mm-hmm. not being explicit allows for so much gray area for people who are in field-based positions and senior leadership positions to have carte blanche to say and do whatever they want and without any repercussions. So that means from sexual harassment to microaggressions, to being completely insensitive and inappropriate in your statements. Um, and, and I think that that's a really dangerous path to be operating in such a cavalier you know, way.
3: Yeah yeah a lot a lot of reflections definitely for me uh starting maybe the conversation just now about because colorism also like intersects with the culture we are talking about and maybe all of you have like you came from somewhere or different places but people like me I just come from my home and this is where I'm from and in that conversation can be very different for um for people like me, like you're just coming from this one area and people see you as this Mm -hmm. and how they see you is so different. Maybe sometimes these layers, um, even not be able to be blessed somewhere sometimes can be a privilege because then you get to some room that nobody would see you as threatening in that sense. Um, and in, 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 in being cognizant of like the different layers, it's not like, It's very complex because we are dealing with different complex uh, uh, operation systems, but to also be able to be squarely put in a box is very very difficult thing to navigate in in global yeah. work environments um because it varies from saying oh everything coming to your table oh we want this we come to you you know but you're never going to be the person to be the face yeah. of um mm-hmm. the leadership right so but meanwhile you're the one whose knowledge is been tapped in who do you know on the ground mm-hmm. who's connections, you're bringing everything, but somehow because you live in a, you're working in a very white supremacist uh, system, then it wants to find the next comfortable person to deal with. So uh, oftentimes like you're African American, you're black from Europe, and you're going to be having that access to that white power than anybody else if they were coming from um, a country uh, with that experience. And also how the global development sector Uh, prioritizes uh, this experiment experience Mm -hmm. like okay if you've been in Haiti for two weeks you are more likely to be (laughs) hired than me who've lived even in East Africa and has traveled in African countries it doesn't kind of matter that I have grown up moving in different East African countries and somehow I have a good idea of that but someone from America who has done two weeks here and there is seen as somebody you know who's going to be uh, more eloquent, more, um, uh, more, uh, yeah, more deserving of that position, and the fact that I just wanted to look at yeah. that in terms of, like, even colorism yeah. Yeah. will actually intersect with all these other, you know, all yeah. these other um, factors in the in the work environment, right. and yeah, and um, for example, for me, my own experience has been in international organizations. Um, what Mona, you know, pointed out uh, that the the, the the curious case of the role of white women in upholding white supremacy and it still works in these organizations that I actually went into organization when a white woman I had attended school with recommended, said, oh, she'll be the best person to work with. Then mm-hmm. I come to that organization. She wanted to, to exert power over me, you know, mm-hmm. and she had no... Um, we were not even like, uh, she was not in any hierarchy in terms of even reporting, right. but she thought she had brought me in, I'm like, I am qualified, you might have recommended me to somebody, but I'm actually qualified, and, and there was a lot of, of stuff, like the, the bosses of white men, mm-hmm. and whatever she says goes, you know, I cannot be hurt, and uh, I've dealt with those situations, where you have in this big white uh, supremacy system with a lot of white men and the organization was probably 80% male in the, in the mm-hmm. first place. And she will so much power over you, um, than, you know, like, than, than anything. So like you have to play to, 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 towards her than even mind about whether you're about to, uh, to do your work. And then the other experience has been actually working purely in a white in a white woman led organization, which is <laughs> another exhausting, traumatizing experience, because that happened after I did work with um, an international organization with very male white male led, and now I worked with a small organization, um, but white women led, you know, and I was one of the two Africans to be hired. As the first hires in that organization, and there was to be best here in East Africa, as some uh, together with a, another colleague. And I think nine months after we joined that organization, we, we were recruited. Like, okay, we are trying to open an East African office. We want people qualified to be able to advance this work in the region. We're like, oh, nice. And besides, it's a small organization. Uh, I was done with huge organizations whose impact I cannot feel, and I can't see my contribution. So I thought, this is good. But nine months into the job, this organization did a, a, um, a restructuring of, of sorts. They did not give an example why somebody was my boss. Suddenly, so I had like three uh, supervisors and one was based in Latin America, speaks very little English and I still had to prove myself to that woman. Uh, so in the, quote, of colorism, uh, this woman, she's a Latina. So, you know, uh, she's seen as more qualified even yep. when she has never been to Africa, she didn't even know probably the capital of Uganda, you know. So, so these kinds of uh, hierarchies existing, and then finding ourselves me and a, a, another African um, lawyer being at the bottom, basically, she was so experienced; she was a senior lawyer, but she was reporting to like three white women, you know. Uh, and and I, I was the first person to leave. I said, "I know what this is," you know. I had had a terrible experience with a, an international organization. So I knew what this looks like. But for her, she kind of stayed on to kind of navigate. And the kind of treatment they took her through, you know, was incredible. So I, I saw it in like coming. I said, I am, and I resigned and I put it in my resignation that I am way qualified than anybody you are trying to make my supervisor. So it's not acceptable and I'm, I'm resigning. Um, Yeah, and it's because I had experienced that in another organization that I was able, in this case, to express myself and to Mm see this in real time, not invest my energy and walk away from it, you know.
0: I was speaking to a friend who works in a predominantly white organization and... Um, She was just talking about like somebody was applying for a role there and they wanted to know, like, you know, what is the level of representation of, you know, non-white people in the organization, and so, especially at senior levels. (laughs) And so she went and she looked up, you know, all of these senior directors and I think, let's say there were like five of them and out of the five, I think like four of them were South Asian men and i'm like there are no black people like you never see black people and it's really starting to irritate me and i'm not saying that south asians are like horrible people but it is literally just like there are if you compare stereotypes that tend to be associated with black people especially i think the certain stereotype like you're saying rosebell that's associated with black africans and you know the more i don't know proper positive stereotypes associated with south asians it's just there is this substitution that I feel is happening and that white people in this sector start to just become, um, what is the word? Not resigned, but what is that word? Complacent. Mm -hmm. They just, when they're talking about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, it's like, oh, we have like five, you know, South Asian leaders in our senior, it is not the same thing. It is not the same thing. And I don't know if I'm the only person who feels like this BIPOC thing, that acronym is turning into a word Mm -hmm. and they're not actually breaking down each individual piece of that to really understand the layers and the nuances, you know, but it's just, that's why I wanted to kind of have this conversation. It's like, we don't really talk about that and it's difficult to get across to them. I was working in one organization and, um, the person leading all of this DEI stuff is a South Asian person. And it's just sort of, just a lack of understanding, I think, of leadership to kind of understand what that looks like. No, I don't feel comfortable going to that person. And I just, for me, there's a whole history of experiencing racism from that community, but they just don't seem to get that. And this person somehow is a figurehead for all non-white people in the organization and speaks for everyone. And our perspectives are totally different. Our experiences are totally different but I just don't know what they're not getting. Is it just, you know, that's what they're comfortable with? That's as far as we're going. There's this complacency in thinking that, okay, we've achieved diversity because we have all of these, you know, model minorities, not a single dark-skinned black person anywhere. But, you know, no, we've, we've done that, but we have a person of color and it's not the same, you know?
3: I I think it is a continuation of anti Blackness, basically. It's like Uh, we we can only move uh, the goalpost only to this, you know, only to here. We are not willing to accord you the humanity you're trying to seek for. Mm So we are going to bring somebody who might look like comfortable for us, but also if from the outside, someone sees, oh, if he can make it, you should also be able to make right. it, right? right? So I think that it's still like that anti-blackness and knowing that these are very adamant systems to change. So they are going to try to move a goalpost just a few feet. No. You know, They are not no. going to do this. And I think that it has continued to be talked about to say, no, we are not the same. We are not the same experiences. We don't have. Uh, uh, we suffer the same. It's uh, the racism is not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, they are different histories, even with the fact that yep. anti-blackness is even in those very exactly. communities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that is very important to see it as you know a system only shifting just a little mm-hmm. inch to make you think that they have made a difference. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, I think I think both of you are absolutely right. I, I definitely equate it to what makes them most comfortable um, and what they understand the most. I think it, and Maimuna, you and I touched upon this a little bit as well. When it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion, I think there's a precursor to that and that is racism, right? Yeah. That is acknowledging one's own ideas, thoughts, beliefs on race. And if you have an all white executive team, if they haven't dealt with that race question individually, I don't see how they can a hundred percent be dedicated to DEI. Yeah, yeah.
2: I can also, if I may add, I was really touched by Roosevelt's comments, and it's actually making me go all the way back to the beginning of my career as a recruiter. And I think it also stems from the way in which organizations are conditioned to recruit and to hire. And I think that's both for international positions as well as home office positions, at least from the perspective that I've uh, worked in. And I can recall very, very specifically, you know, this, the requirements. For fielding someone who meets the criteria in a proposal. Um, and that candidates who perhaps had all of the experience, but who were not American didn't weren't weren't looked at as the most favorable candidate to win that particular bid. Wow. I've also seen this been in rooms where I've recommended um, candidates to come and apply to an organization that I was working in and the reason for which they were not hired was because English wasn't their first language and I think that shows up in the worship of of the of perfecting the written word that a candidate cannot be acceptable because of their writing Um, and I think it's 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 an excuse but I also think it, it it supports the status quo and the way that people are brought into an organization, you go to your networks, you tend to recruit from the same university networks, the same types of people, and that that continues your leadership pipeline, if, if that person d- decides to continue with that organization. So I think all of these reasons come up that, that justify certain profiles of people being brought in. And I think the same case can be made Maimuna, to your point about um, South Asian candidates being more acceptable.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I'm still I continue to be surprised by how resilient white supremacy is and how people want to really hold on to that. And I had an experience that I shared with Dina, you know about it and Muna as well. Um, I had an experience um, being on um, a panel where, you know, there was a highly qualified, amazing woman of color, and she was South Asian. They did incredibly well and surpassed the white female candidate. And yet still we get to the point where the white women on the panel keep going back to this white female candidate as being completely incredible and uh their comments about the south asian person were you know they did really well but we don't know if they really fit with the culture or you know it was just you know we just didn't like listening to them it just it was just still surprising that you know and I guess maybe not so much because we've just what we've been talking about is it isn't just about you know getting the education and getting the internships and getting the field experience and then applying for this amazing job is not going to do it and even nailing your interview like you still have to be white it's just like the only way that you actually succeed is you check all of these white supremacy box and it's it was just literally you know It was just baffling to me. Um, It's just, you know, no matter how qualified this person was, they don't fit the culture, which is code for you're basically not white. So thank you, but no thank you.
2: And just something that's coming up for me as a reflection, you know, I can recall um, a previous organization I worked for that what you're talking about, Maimuna, is the code for which, you know, justification is made, there's absolutely no reflection being done from those in power to say, right. how can I learn more? How can I go inward? How can I make this uh, team more inviting? As opposed to, you know, there was a, an organization with, with uh, which I worked and, and there was a member of the senior management committee who, who was a black woman. But I remember being invited to some of those meetings and seeing how uncomfortable she was. Yeah. Yeah. It was so apparent mm-hmm. that it eventually got to a point where she left. And I think that's what ends up. I don't want to, I think it, there's a breaking point. Yes. You mentioned the word an impasse at a certain point. When do you, when do you reach a point where you say, I just can't keep fighting it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I I don't want to suggest, let it go. I just think on a personal level, it is, I don't know. (laughs) It's
1: exhausting.
0: It's impossible to just be in a bubble, put your head down and just, quote unquote, do the work, you know, because I think all of the microaggressions we were talking about, these very subtle triggers because of a conversation or, you know, a Zoom call or a comment or hearing about a story that another Black woman or brown woman experienced and, you know, being aware that there is this gaslighting that's happening. I think your point, Muna, about, I don't think that, for me, this is like a light bulb moment is, yeah, I think the anti-racism work should precede like the DEI because I think the DEI is the very politically correct, superficial, you know, nice and comfortable to deal with peace, and we're not really addressing the elephant in the room. And, and you're right, until we actually do that, I don't think all of this other stuff matters because I shouldn't be sitting there as the only black person reminding everybody of what your commitments are. You know, it's, you know and it's not even like I'm saying, just hire this person because they're not white. Hire them because they are extremely qualified and because they bring a specific perspective of like intersectionality and understanding what all of that means, that a white woman will never have of race and ethnicity and how and gender and how all of that intersects. Um, but it's just, I just continue to be surprised by how that pool towards, you know, the white candidate still like and every justification that they throw out there for why the non-white candidate is not the one despite the skills and qualifications and what that person has proven. <sighs> I feel like we need to, we have a little bit of time left. But I, I feel like, <laughs> I always look at Roosevelt for inspirational statements, which is, cause this was so heavy and I feel like I'm just mentally drained as a result of this conversation, which was also nice to be like in community with all of you and just feeling supported. Um, I still feel like it's good to end on, on a positive,
2: <laughs> a positive if, if I, could I offer something? Yes, please. <laughs> I, I would just say that, and Muna knows the story that I'm, that, uh, that I'm thinking of. I think there's power in creating space. Um, and when I say Muna knows about this, the very reason why I, I left one of my organizations was because the space that was created to have real authentic conversations wasn't something that was appreciated. It was actually feared and created a lot of controversy. So I am leading to a positive statement. I think Maimuno, what you all have created in this space is actually allowing others to hold space for those who have had this type of experience and to actually speak, speak honestly and truthfully about these experiences so that they don't have to continue to live in secret. And I think there's a real healing energy inside of this that I really, I really applaud you for creating this space because I don't think these conversations are happening enough, and I don't think that they're happening um, in in a way that people are are accessing. And, and I would say that to even white people who need to be hearing this, right? You know, yeah.
1: Thanks, too. So, I just
2: want to say it's 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 commendable.
1: I yeah, agree. I agree. I think you know. I wish the younger version of myself had something like this to listen to and and know that I wasn't alone. Because I think for so long, I the whole gaslighting thing. I really felt as though I was the problem and not other people making the problems for me. So thank you.
3: Um, I wanted to say something that uh, really like all uh, experiences are connected to the fact that. You know, we have to look at the the sector itself, how it grew, and whom it claims to work for. And I always say, like the majority of the time, it's about trying to tell formerly colonized peoples that you can do this for yourself. So you need us to do it for you in all these entities. We might need the to work because we come from these countries, we have these backgrounds that we need to work and um but I think like being aware of why actually these entities exist and integrating that, you know, someone said like at the end of the day, the job is to work yourself out of this job. Because there's no need to be having these organizations. I think if countries could stand on their own, if we didn't have neoliberal, um, you know, mechanisms that are continuing to get money out of our economies uh, every day, and and then just to know to be cognizant of that infrastructure that the reason you don't fit in is because it was not meant for you it was not meant for us and to be cognizant but also um, of the fact that it's a supreme a white supremacy system that the color is one of them and how it intersects with culture and constantly pushing it to say, okay, you need to reform. It's not enough to just like include me, I am not here, but you need to actually dismantle your relations with the people you're trying to work with, with systems, with government, and to make sure that we shouldn't be needing these in a few years, you know, we shouldn't, if we are going to be honest. So I think on that macro level, but also as black women on the micro level to be cognizant of how color in itself in our own communities, it also reflects it's 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 really looking towards whiteness that that yeah. that actually brings a certain um, kind of violence even within our own communities about color how we see in my community they will say brown person mm-hmm. <laughs> of saying in the global context but to be seen like the lighter you are, the more, you know, yes. exalted you are. So, and I think like in the spaces we come in to be cognizant of that, that we also take part in that actually, in no. part of like subconscious yeah. uh, that we need to fight. Uh, we need to look out for people who are not like us, who are maybe, or knowing also color, but also other factors, you know, uh, that can actually bring that diverse lived experiences that we have as black people.